The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transform their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. Now, can you really systematically and consistently get the results you want from others and at the same time make them feel genuinely good about themselves, about the process, and about you? Well, our guest today, Bob Berg, says absolutely. Bob is a sought-after speaker at corporate conventions and for entrepreneurial events. He regularly addresses audience that range in size from 50 all the way to 16,000. He has shared the platform with notables, including today's top thought leaders, broadcast personalities, Olympic athletes, and political leaders, including former U.S. presidents. And although for years he was best known for his book, Endless Referrals, over the past few years, it's his business parable, The Go-Giver, that has captured the heart and imagination of his readers. It shot to number six on the Wall Street Journal's business bestsellers list just three weeks after its release, and it reached number nine on Business Weeks. It's been translated into 21 languages and is his fourth book to sell more than 250,000 copies. In spite of all that success, Bob believes that his new book, Adversaries into Allies, Win People Over Without Manipulation or Coercion, is by far his most important work yet, and he's with us today to talk about why. Welcome to the show today, Bob. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. I mentioned your new book, Adversaries into Allies, and have looked at it uh, and read, read parts of it. Are you saying that everyone and anyone who in any way disagrees with you is your enemy? Interesting title. Yeah, thanks. And, and, and no, uh, certainly not everyone who disagrees with us is our adversary. They, they may, or, or who in any way stands in the way of, of what we're trying to accomplish, they may not be an enemy either. It, it may just be um, the um, context itself. I mean, it could be trying to return an item uh, and get your money back when the customer service person isn't equipped to help you to do that. Oh. Uh, it, you know, it, it might be asking the boss for a raise. Uh, it could be, uh, it really could be pretty much anything. And uh, there are times when we really have to be able to work with a person in such a way that we can obtain the satisfaction we want while helping them feel good about themselves and about the situation. Uh, and it doesn't mean they're they're an enemy. Although, hey, you know what? There are plenty of those uh, sometimes that that really don't have the best intent. So it's really a, a way of, of of dealing with with anyone. Now, uh, one of the uh, uh, one lesson I, I I learned that I just thought was terrific, and we we mentioned this quickly in the book, is Sadaharu Oh, the uh, the old Japanese uh, baseball player who was the uh, considered the Japanese Babe Ruth. He, he was a wonderful home run hitter, and he used to say that he considered the uh, the pitcher not as his adversary, but as his partner in hitting home runs, because it took both of them in order for him to hit the home run. So I think I look at adversaries in this case as more being a partner in terms of attaining satisfaction as well as helping us to grow in the process. 
Well, and that makes perfect sense because it really does take two people to come to some sort of a compromise or to some sort of an agreement in order for both parties to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied. So so that's a really interesting way of looking at it, in a very good way. Well, thank you. And, you know, and I, I think a lot of times, uh, while there's certainly a time and place for compromise, I think a lot of times what this helps you do is to get the results you want without having to compromise because there's many times in which both of you are looking for an outcome in which you both can win and both advance and both prosper without either of you having to give up anything. Uh, now, again, there's, there's a time and place for that as well, but I always like to say that, that tact and empathy and, and, and attaining satisfaction – doesn't necessarily equate to compromise. Uh, sometimes we don't have, and I would say usually we don't have to do that. What we do have to do is determine first what is it that this other person wants mm. and how can we tie in what we want along with what this other person wants as well. Sometimes it's a way of just treating another person with kindness, respect, and you know, helping them feel good about the situation, and they're going to you know, do cartwheels to help us get what we want, and no compromise is needed. Well, that's very true. Acknowledgement sometimes goes a long way. And so I, I want to turn now to the word influence. We hear that used a lot, and you use it a lot in your book, in fact. So what really is influence, and why is it so important? Well, on a very basic level, influence can be defined as uh, – as moving a person or persons to a desired action, usually within the context of a, a, a specific goal. And it's important because, you know, you could have practically all the positive success traits working for you. Uh, you can be very talented and of extremely high character. You can be ambitious, kind, charitable, hardworking, thrifty, and energetic. You can have a knack for numbers and a head for business. You can be even-tempered and creative and, and much, much more. And, you know, all of that is terrific. It's great. However, unless you can move people to action uh, in a way that, that's both ethical and kind and um, uh, and creates movement, creates a process, uh, your chances for success are, are, are significantly uh, limited. Uh, on the other hand, when, when combining benevolent intent as, uh, along with a, a learned skill set, you can actually find yourself consistently, constantly, and even predictably attaining satisfaction both business-wise and personally while adding exceptional value to everyone whose lives you touch. So it's really a matter of, of, uh, of influence, again, moving people to action in a, in a benevolent and, and purposeful way. That is what makes the big difference. We all see many people who have a lot of talents and a lot of skills, but they, they never seem to accomplish what they, can, what they could because they don't have the people skills. That, that's very true, and in fact, there are a lot of business owners who struggle because they have a great vision, but they can't bring the people along with them to move them into action and to carry out that vision. It, they can't do it by themselves, obviously. They need the people, but a lot of business owners have problems helping their staff to understand that vision and, and help them move it forward for them. And so that, that brings me to another question, something that I see a lot, and it's you know, some business owners who are listening may say, hey, I'm the employer, I'm the boss, 
And so my better, I can just tell my employees what to do, and they better do it. Otherwise, I can just get rid of them. I can fire them. Uh, obviously not a good solution, and why is that? Well, you know, it, first of all, what they're saying is true. They, they could. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's running a business through compliance, uh, through fear, and through, uh, you know. Uh, and lots of turnover. <laughs> well, what, what happens is when you do that, you will not inspire commitment. Uh, you will have complaint. Let's face it. You know uh, what? What that employer is doing is they're being a positional leader. It's based on the fact that they're the you know the manager, the supervisor, the department head, or the employer. And let's face it, even someone with only positional influence can still uh, compel certain people to do certain things. The the employee knows if he or she wants any chance of advancement, a promotion, a raise, or to not be as you just mentioned. Uh, uh, punished or, or or disciplined or fired, they need to do what they're told. But again, that's compliance. And um, and what happens when you when you're leading through compliance? And it doesn't matter if you have a team of thousands or hundreds or ten or, or three. When you when you try to influence people or move people to action through compliance, typically at best, the person will do exactly what they're told and not one bit more. Out, and that's at best. At worst, they'll find a way to sabotage the process completely, consciously or or unconsciously. When you have commitment, that's a whole different story. Now you've got people who who feel a part. Now uh, you feel a part of it. Who who have who have uh, a commitment to seeing your goals accomplished. But that's only because you've you've stepped back and you said, wait a minute. How does what I'm asking this person to do, how does that also tie into their wants, their needs, their desires, their goals, their values? And when you've asked these questions, both intelligently and genuinely, not as a way to manipulate another person, but in a, in a way to help build them, uh, now you've come a lot further to earning that commitment. And there's a, a huge difference between compliance and commitment. My great friend and one of my uh, terrific mentors, Dondi Scumachi. I, I love what she says about this. She says, compliance will never take you where commitment can go. Compliance will never take you where commitment can go. Uh, great leaders, great influencers know that they accomplish great things with others, uh, and the best ones understand that when it comes right down to it, it's never about them. Great leadership is never about the leader. Great influence is never about the influencer. And great salesmanship is never about the salesperson. Who is it about? It's always about the other person. It's about that person whose lives you choose to touch, whose lives you choose to add value to. And that's the difference between a great leader who elicits commitment and that boss who, you know, can get some things done, you know, no question about it, but will never be as effective as they could be. Let's stay with that for a minute. You mentioned the word persuasion and manipulation a minute ago. What is the difference? Aren't they really the same thing? I mean, there's probably some people out there who are saying, if you are intentionally trying to persuade somebody, isn't that a form of manipulation in itself? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, that's a great question. And we need to look at it at you know influence when you say how, how does one influence well there's two different ways uh, basically by 
manipulation or persuasion because both will move someone to action. Now the results will will be will be different. Um, but let's let's take a look at that. Uh, you know, the persuader and the, and the manipulator. And I would say, by the way, that manipulation and persuasion, and I say this in the book, they're cousins, because both the manipulator and the persuader understand human motivation. They know how to move a person to action. Now, one's the good cousin and one's the evil cousin, <laughs> but they're still cousins. Uh, so let's take a look at this. Uh, in his excellent book uh, written in 1987, Dr. Paul Sweats, the, the book was the, uh, the Art of Talking So That People Will Listen, though the book was much more about listening than talking. It was a, a wonderful book. He defined the difference. He described the difference in a way much better than I ever did. So I, I like to just cite Dr. Sweats' explanation. He says uh, manipulation aims at control, not cooperation. It results in a win-lose situation because it does not consider the good of the other party. Uh, in direct contrast to the manipulator, the persuader seeks to enhance the self-esteem of the other party. The result is that people respond better because they're treated as responsible, or we could say response-able, self-directing individuals. So we see that it begins with intent, but that's not where it ends. It actually ends in result. Because here's the thing, a manipulator and a persuader can both elicit short-term action, okay? But what happens is once you know you've been manipulated, you're going to always be on guard Absolutely. against that person. Uh, you're not going to trust them. You're not going to want to do for them, with them, by them. With a persuader, they're also going to, to, to elicit action immediately. But you're going to be committed to that person because you know they had your best interest in mind. So I would say that a, a manipulator, hey, a manipulator can have employees, but very rarely a committed team. A manipulator can make the sale, but rarely have a repeat customer or, and, and practically never, a walking ambassador singing their praises. And a manipulator can have a family who they love and a family who loves them, but very rarely a functional family. So persuasion is, is much better both in intent and in the results. Okay, so you talk about there being five principles of ultimate influence. Obviously, we can't take a deep dive into all five today. People are going to have to get your book to find that out. But could you briefly tell us what they are? Sure. Well, and if we had time, I'd, I'd be glad to go into all of them deeply. But as you, as you said, we, we really don't. But let me give you enough of a Reader's Digest version that it at least provides some value and understanding. Uh, the, uh, the first one is simply control your own emotions. Um, this is so key because it's only when we're in control of our emotions that we're in a position to be able to take a, 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 a possible potentially negative situation or person and create a solution where, where everyone wins, where everyone comes out ahead. And a big part of that is simply, you know, being, us controlling our emotions rather than allowing our emotions to control us. And this is a decision. It's something many people, I certainly had to retrain myself. And I, I talk in the book on how to retrain yourself uh, in order to have a, a, what I call a default system that goes into calm rather than anger, which is what so, so often happens when we're, yes. you know, we're hit with something unexpected or somebody is insulting or somebody does something we don't like. So you've got to be in control because only then are you in a position, as, as uh, Zig Ziglar used to say, to respond rather than react. 
and I love what he used to say as an example. Did you respond well to the medication, or did you have a bad reaction? Great example. And, and that's the difference between uh, the, the two. So we need to first control our own emotions. It begins there every time. Second is understand the clash of belief systems. Uh, a belief is a subjective truth. It's how we see the world. It's our truth. It doesn't mean it's their truth, or it doesn't mean it's the truth, okay? And so, uh, you know, our belief system is the lens through which we see the world. It's based on uh, upbringing, environment, schooling, news media, television, uh, movies, popular culture, entertainment, mores, everything we touch, taste, hear, see, smell. And it was handed to us very early. It was pretty much set in place at a very young age. We are, we are basically run by our belief system. It is unconscious. We don't even know we're run by it. And it's the same with the other person. <laughs> they live a life based on a belief system or operating system they're not even aware of. So you've got two people each about to have a maybe a disagreement or what have you, and it's based on two different, totally different belief systems. But as human beings, we tend to think everybody sees the world the same way we do. That's why you hear people say, oh, everybody feels that way. Of course. Oh, nobody likes that. I would never say or do that to someone. Well, we're operating out of a, our belief system thinking it's everyone else's. So we have to understand not necessarily their belief system. We just need to understand that this person with whom we're having a situation with probably looks at the world a lot differently than we do. And it's only when we become conscious of that that we're in a position of being able to help everyone involved. Which leads us to your third principle. This is just acknowledge their ego. You know, the, the ego is another one of those things that is so often misconstrued. The ego is simply the I. It's our understanding that we are a unique individual. Uh, when when we have our ego, when we're in control of our ego, it can accomplish great things, uh, both for us personally and for society as a whole. But, of course, as we know, when our ego is in control of us, now we're not doing the, the most constructive things. Well, we need to obviously acknowledge that. But what's key here is we need to acknowledge the other person's ego. I don't mean acknowledge it by saying, hey, buddy, you know, your ego is acting. <laughs> that will have the opposite effect. But we simply need to acknowledge that if they are not acting in a way that's constructive or productive or what have you, it's probably their ego at work. So we need mm -hmm. to acknowledge that and always honor that because it will come up. Okay, so ego, very important. We have to acknowledge the other person's ego in order to move the dial most times. So what's number four? Well, that sets the proper frame. What is a frame? Uh, a frame is simply the foundation from which everything else evolves. A very quick uh, example would be the uh, little boy in the Dunkin' Donuts I talk about in the book who is walking toward his parents, and all of a sudden he fell to the ground. And you could see that he wasn't hurt, but you could also see that he was shaken up by that. He didn't expect, you know, he intuitively knew that wasn't supposed to happen. So he right. looked at his mom and dad for their interpretation of the event. Now, the event was what it was, but he was looking at them to see what would happen now. Uh, and I, I, I truly believe that had they looked at him and started to get upset and panic, oh, no, my poor baby, oh, you must be so hurt. He would have taken that cue, that frame, 
uh, and he would have been upset. He would have cried. But what they did is they handled it beautifully. They they uh, you know started to applaud and they laughed and they had a smile on their face and they said, "Oh, it's such a good trick!" And he immediately started to laugh and have fun. What the parents did is they set a productive frame for him to operate from. Right. And that's so key. And we need to do that. We also need to be ready to reset. Uh, the other person's frame when they come into a, a situation, not in a not in a, a positive way. And so I, I talk about that: how to be able to effectively reset another person's frame. This is very key because once you have set or reset the frame, you're eighty percent of the way toward getting the results you want. Oh, and that is so key in a business environment where there are a lot of deadlines and there's a lot of tension. Uh, people people come in and, and sometimes if you can just refocus and reframe, as you say, and not necessarily use these words, but it's going to be okay, then a lot of times it's all they need to refocus themselves and get back on track. And, and again, just as the little boy going to the Dunkin' Donuts, it, it's to give them that foundation. So what is the last one, number five? Well, this one is to communicate with tact and empathy. Uh, and this is so important because you can do everything else right, okay, the first four. But if you don't communicate with tact and empathy, it's, it's really all for naught. Um, what is tact? Well, my dad has always defined tact as the language of strength. And I agree with that because when you use tact uh, genuinely, wow, there's just really no stopping you. Uh, you know, tact is really, when you think of it, it's a way of being able to correct someone or critique someone or, or dare I be a bit politically correct and say constructively criticize someone. None of that that we ever want to do, but we're talking about the real world. And sometimes someone does something they need to, you know, to be corrected tactfully. They overpay on a negotiable uh, uh, product or they, they give a customer some wrong information or they're talking disrespectfully to a coworker or someone who's, you know, in the front office. You know, the, and we need to be able to communicate this to them in a way that not only are they not defensive and resistant to us and to our idea, but they are ready to embrace it. And they must first embrace us before the idea. Uh, you know, I, I always say, and I've said for years, that all things being equal, people will do business with and refer business to those people they know, like, and trust. Well, we can also add they'll allow themselves to be influenced by those people they know, like, and trust. But they must first feel as though you have their best interest at heart before they're going to buy into your idea, again, in such a way that they commit to it, not comply with it. Yes, and that can be a really difficult one to master as a leader or, you know, as a business owner, especially if you can't get control of your emotions, which is your mm -hmm. first the first principle that you talked about because if it, a lot of times once you've lost control of your emotions, the tact goes out the window and the empathy goes out the window and it just spirals downward from there. That's gonna, why it always starts with the with the first one, controlling your own emotions. Without that, nothing else is going to is going to be able to happen. We're talking to Bob Berg, author of Adversaries into Allies. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Are you looking for that perfect diet, that magic pill, that one big thing you can do that finally makes you lose weight, heals your body, or will make you feel better? The thing is, it just doesn't work that way. Instead, it is the small changes that stick and ultimately compound to create big shifts in our holistic well-being. 
Simple and consistent action is what carves canyons out of rock and helps the tortoise win the race. The same is true for creating and maintaining healthy habits and holistic well-being, mind, body, and spirit. Tune in to Small Changes, Big Shifts to hear Dr. Michelle Robin and her guests share wisdom, knowledge, real-life stories, and practical tips to inspire and inform you as you move forward on your wellness journey. Every Tuesday afternoon, 1 o'clock Central Time, on Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Your product outshines the competition, so why aren't you out selling them? You're meeting sales projections, but the bottom line just isn't what it should be. Technology is changing rapidly and impacting your ability to perform. Something needs to change, but you just can't put your finger on what. I'm Patrick Shore, your host at The Hut, where we tackle these and other issues. The Hut is a safe place where we can explore what it takes to not only stay in front of the competition, but make it irrelevant. So come on in, kick off your shoes, and join the conversation every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time on Blog Talk Radio, Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio Network. The Hut, your path to a stronger, thriving, profitable business. Welcome back to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. Today we're talking about Adversaries into Allies, which is Bob Berg's latest book. And we were just talking about the five principles of ultimate influence, Bob. Now, one of the questions that I have been dying to ask you is that you say there's one question that anybody can ask that pretty much guarantees to keep potential misunderstandings from ever happening. I mean, that's a $64 million question. If everybody knew that, what a much better place this would be. What is that question? Well, and it's actually very simple. It's based on, again, understanding the clash of belief systems, that someone says something and we, we can all uh, interpret it different ways. It's, it's like the, uh, you know, the, the car accident that 10 different people see, and they all see it even from practically the same angle, and they all have 10 different interpretations of the accident. So it's the same when somebody says something. First of all, words do have different meanings, but even words we think as, uh, that can be defined in a very specific way, we all see them differently. So let's just take a very, very simple example. Uh, the supervisor, the team leader says, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, things have changed. We need to complete this project immediately. Okay, now, what does that mean? Well, to one person on the team, immediately means it's got to be done tonight, okay, by, by tomorrow morning. So uh, I'm going to need to cancel going to the ball game with my kid, which I would never do, but I know I have to do it because this is immediate. Uh, the other person figures immediate means uh, within the next few days. Another person thinks immediately means once the other project's done. And the next person for immediately thinks it's, it's by the end of the month. And so this can obviously cause some con- confusion. Now, the, the actual question that you could ask can be as simple as, you know, when you, uh, when you say immediately, are you thinking of a specific uh, day or a specific date or a date and time. But you also need to make sure you say it in a way with, with tact so that it's not taken as though it's a challenge. You know, to True. say, well, what do you mean by immediately? That could mean anything. Or, or well, uh, you know, when you say that, what, what day are you thinking of? Well, you know, again, that comes across in a way that's going to make that other person defensive. So what you might do is add what I, what I call a, a softener. It just kind of softens the effect and makes it more uh, effective. And that is to say something like, you know, Dave or Mary, just for my own clarification, when you say immediately, is there a specific date? and time you're thinking of? Sure. Boom. 
Sure, and that's a fair question. If, I mean, gets everybody on the same page. It, it makes sure that uh, there's no misunderstandings about expectations. But you have a goal to work towards. So often, though, that's what we as human beings do. We say something, and if we really thought about it, we'd know it can be defined in many, many different ways. You know, so whether it's the word soon or, or whether it's, uh, um, you know, something like, uh, you know, let's all meet later at the beach. Well, do you mean that place by the ocean or do you mean that new restaurant called the beach? So, you know, <laughs> you never know. So there's many, many different ways. And I've seen people in conversations with each other in which they actually are talking about two different things, actually arguing about two different things, both of them thinking they're talking about the same thing. So when you ask people to clarify, to define their terms or, uh, you know, what, what does that actually mean to you? Or when you say so-and-so, what exactly do you mean? Or, uh, again, as we just said, is there a specific date? There, anything like that in which you're helping that person to clarify, uh, you, you're on the right track. Okay, so one of the things I want to go back to is the tact a little bit. A question came to me as you were talking about that. One of the really difficult things that we have to do as business owners, really really as people in general, but especially as business owners, is, is to tell people no sometimes. It, we just have a lot of demands, and there aren't enough hours in the day, it seems, to get around to all of our real priorities. And so you just have to say no sometimes, and that can be very difficult. How do we overcome that? Well, that can be difficult because as human beings, we generally want to please others, and there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with, with that at all, assuming that, that what you're doing, at first, it aligns with your values, and it's something that you, you want to do uh, or that you, you feel it ne- is, is necessary to do. Um, it, it's not productive when you're doing things that you really don't have time to be doing that's going to cut into your productivity or your, your sense of joy and happiness and so forth. So the two way, there are two basic ways people generally will tell people no. And I, and I think by and large, both of these ways are very counterproductive. Uh, one, and this is becoming you know, sort of more politically correct and is becoming more taught lately, and that is to just tell people no. No, I've heard this, no is a complete sentence. And people hear that, and they nod their heads, and they become all empowered as, okay, I'm just going to tell people no. But really, are you really going to do that? Are you going to rudely just tell somebody no, I I don't want to serve on this committee you're asking me to serve on? Uh, The answer is no. Well, probably you're not going to do that first because it's it's not polite. It's just not nice. Uh, it's unnecessary. Uh, it could turn someone off who's a friend or who could be a friend. It 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 um, uh, it closes you off to any other future opportunity of doing something with this person. And the most important reason of all why you're not going to be rude is because it it runs contrary to your value system of treating people with respect. So. So no, that that's not a a real good way to do it. Now the other way people do it is it's the opposite tack, and that is they they make an ex- because they're so afraid of just saying no, they make an excuse. So they'll say, oh, I I, I would, but I, I just I just don't have time. Well, there's there are a couple of challenges with that. One is that it's it's really not that you don't have time; it's that you don't value doing this as much as you value not doing it. So, which is okay, but when you say, I don't have time, it's really not true. And, and you don't feel good about it because you know it's not true. If you really wanted to do it, you'd find the time. Uh, that's how human beings are. That's yes. how we do things. Uh, but also problematic is that this person 
who's used to people telling them that, he, they have an answer. And so, the, the, you know, the, so they're going to be very persuasive in, in showing you that time is really not an issue. And when they do that, you're going to then, you're left with two choices. One is to either uh, admit that you're fibbing. That really, when it comes down to it, you just don't want to do it. And then, you know, they kind of resent you because you fibbed and you kind of don't feel good about yourself. Or the other thing is, in order to save face, you're going to have to accept the assignment that you don't want to do. And that's not helping anyone. It's, it's certainly not, not putting you in the position you want to be in. So yeah, fortunately, you don't have to do that either. So what's, what's very, the answer? Yeah, it's very easy to say no in a way that is polite, makes them feel good about themselves, and honors your limits. It's simply to say, thank you so much. Uh, while it's not something I'd like to do, please know how honored I am to be asked. Very simple. It, yep, and that's it. You've honored them. You've thanked them. You've let them know that, no, it's not something that you want to do. But you didn't make excuses. You didn't give them something to grab onto. You just right. let them know, you know, while it's not something I'd like to do, hey, I'm honored to be asked. So what you basically say, hey, you can always ask me. That's mm -hmm. uh, That's fine. But if I don't want to do it, I don't feel the need to make excuses. I'm just not going to do it, but I'm going to be very polite about it. Sure. Now, one of the other things that you've done and that you talked about in your book is you adopted a stray cat, and you say she adopted you in, in the book, and that she was very resistant at first, but you were able to win her over. And as I said, you actually devoted a chapter in your book to her, and you credit one very key principle. It's, it's such a remarkable story. I'd really like you to share that with us and whether that can work with humans, with people. Well, thank you. And, and, and you know, uh, it was a whole chapter, but the chapters are very short. So yeah. <laughs> yes, good she didn't take up a whole lot of time, although there were a couple of Liberty stories in there, and I named her Liberty. But um, basically, uh, you know, she was stray or, or feral. We're, we're still not sure, but um, a neighbor saw her, and, and she was very skinny and, and hungry-looking. And so she was so scared of humans, though that, you know, when we tried to put some food down for she, she wouldn't let us go near her. In fact, she wouldn't even eat while we were looking at her. So uh, we had to stand way back, and eventually she, she ate the kibble that we, we put out there. And, and then, uh, you know, this went on for a couple of days. And I what I started to do was I'd bring the kibble plate, uh, the plate of kibble, bowl of kibble, a little closer to my house, you know, to my uh, back porch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she she be a little bit more confident and so forth. But, of course, she always had plenty of room to run and escape so that she, she wasn't threatened. Well, eventually we got her eating right outside my patio, and then I actually had the plate, in, the bowl in the patio, but, of course, I kept the door open. So she always had a back door. She always had an escape route. So she was comfortable. And then uh, eventually I, I, she actually would come in, just take a step inside the, the sliding door, uh, to eat, and I could even be standing near her as long as the door stayed open, the sliding door as well as the other back door. Well, she, so she's getting more and more comfortable, but she kept, she still had an escape hatch. Now, mm -hmm. eventually, and this is a you know over the course of a couple of weeks, I went to close. I wanted her to get used to just being in the house with the door closed. So I um, started to slowly close the door, and as I did, she looked up and looked back as though she was going to dart away. And so what I did is very quickly opened the door as wide as it would go. Well, now that she felt secure again, she, she just continued to eat. 
Well, we kept doing this, and, and very soon I then could close the door, and she was fine, and you know she became my great friend and companion. But here, here was the situation. It's not that she wanted to leave. It's that she wanted to know she could leave. Good and so often that's the case, whether dealing with a four-legged or a two-legged, that's the, that's the situation. It's what I call Berg's law of the out or back door, and that's simply that the bigger the out or back door you give someone to take, the less they'll feel the need to take it. So we always want to make sure people don't feel pressured, but that they always feel as though they're in control. And as we do that, they're much more open to, to doing the thing that we're, we're advising them to do. Well, Bob, you have that story, many others, as well as much more detail about your five principles of ultimate influence in your book. And obviously, we don't have time to go through all of that today. But for those who would like to read more, how would they get a copy of your book? They can go to uh, my website, which is berg.com, and that's B-U-R-G.com. And while they're on my page, they can you know uh, they can visit all over the page and see some of the different things that we have. But there's a there's a um, graphic of the book, and if they'll click on that, it will take them to a page where they can actually download chapter one to see if they like it first. And then if they do, they can always click right through and order the book online or get it at their local bookseller. Bob, it's been wonderful having you here today. And again, you can get Bob's book at his website, berg.com, B-U-R-G.com. Are your other books available through that website as well? Yes, because they all click through uh, to to the other online uh, booksellers. Okay. Well, again, Bob, thank you very much for being our guest today, and uh, good luck with your new book. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you. And if you'd like to find out more about how to grow your business, you can visit our website at ithinkbigger.com. Follow us on Twitter at ithinkbigger or like our Facebook page at Thinking Bigger Business Media. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.